Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Welcome to Friday, and welcome to Week in Review. I'm your host, Bill Radke, and I figure you probably haven't made the time to stay abreast of all the week's big local developments. So what I've done is successfully courted three local journalists to make you informed in just the space of an hour. I like that efficiency, and uh, and, and it's convivial as well when it's Seattle Times senior investigative reporter Patrick Malone with us. Hiya, Patrick. Hi, Bill. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. And Puget Sound Business Journal tech reporter Alex Halverson. Welcome back, Alex. Hey, Bill. Thanks for having me. Of course. And freelance health journalist Joanne Silberner. Hi, Joanne. Great to be here, Bill. Great to have you here. And by the way, listeners, you can be viewers because you can stream this show on YouTube and Facebook. Okay, we're going to begin this week on politics. And, and Patrick, you've been following this the closest, so I'm going, to, I'm going to lean on you the most for a few minutes here. Our uh, Seattle Congress member, Pramila Jayapal, has been a major political success story, uh, advocated for immigrant groups here after the September 11th attacks, advised the city of Seattle, got elected to state legislature, and after just one term, got elected to Congress, first Indian American woman to serve in the House, co-chaired the Congressional Progressive Caucus. Now she's chair of that caucus. So she has great respect and influence. And this week, Jayapal's office sent a letter to President Biden, signed by 30 liberal House Democrats, asking him to change his strategy on Ukraine, to pursue direct negotiations with Russia, to look for a ceasefire. Well, this is not the official Democratic line. Biden's trying to keep up American support for the war effort, appear tough on Putin. He has said it's up to the Ukrainians to decide whether they want to negotiate with Russia. So, Patrick, this is about strategy. This is arguably arguably about ethics, the right thing to do. It is definitely about politics. What should our listeners understand here? Well, I think really the central question here is the letter. That's exactly the question that hasn't really been answered by Rep. Jayapal and other House Democrats who signed it. And it's truly an unforced error. First, the letter is completely tone deaf to the broad sentiment of opposition to Putin and his actions in Ukraine. It also sort of uh, unprovoked put the Biden White House in a tricky spot by implying that it had somehow mishandled what is a very delicate international matter by not seeking direct negotiations with the Kremlin. And that's tricky in its own right, because at this point, it's largely a proxy war and direct involvement of the U.S. or NATO could really tip the balance on nuclear weapons. And that's a very real prospect. So uh, another troublesome aspect of this whole saga is the competing information we're getting about its release. Jaya Paul said it was a staffer who released it without vetting from the top, but Politico, to the contrary, reported that Jaya Paul had authorized it. And that looks sort of scurrilous and deceptive. Not how a party clinging to narrow majority is facing an uphill battle in an ongoing election wants to be perceived, especially by undecided voters. So if there's any solace in the situation for Democrats, it's probably that overwhelmingly voters have had their minds made up in congressional races like this. Uh, so maybe won't change their vote. But for those up for grabs voters, particularly the ones that are highly engaged with the news, 
this could look like a splintered party that sometimes goes off half cocked. And that could steer, you know, some undecided voters that both parties are really pursuing in the Republican direction. And I don't believe a substantial number of voters are single issue Ukraine prioritizers, for instance. But uh, this was an issue that Democrats had squarely owned and they held the high ground, uh, looking all the way back to former President Trump's actions to deny aid to Ukraine, which I necessarily on an issue that I believe they were winning in terms of public sentiment. And for all those reasons, it was just stupid. Yeah, yeah. I, I think it could keep some voters home. Why do you, you know, say that, Joanne? I just think people are, you know, if if you are not interested in voting for her opponent and you um, may lose interest in voting for her, you might just say, and, and again, I, I take Patrick's point. I don't think that it's a voting issue, but I, I do worry about something that somebody in the Seattle Times said. It was I'm going to read this. They refer to the possibility, whether the question of whether is this unavoidably instinctual self-sabotage, you know, it, meaning, and I meaning wonder about de- that. something about the Democrats. They, 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 <laughs> Just, they, they, they don't they're not as unified. Well, the, when they're looking good on something, something's got to come along and ruin it. So yeah. they're looking good on Ukraine. And then I don't know. What do you think, Patrick? I think you nailed it, that nothing had to be said here. It would have been one of those times just hold your tongue and lose. Uh, instead, they felt compelled to insert themselves into this, and it clearly was done not on the same page with the White House. Yeah. Patrick, will you um, cut your video just to see if that's going to help your audio? Because it's it's breaking up a little bit. So let's try it. To say a little more about the politics I'm no no political expert, so feel free to uh, to uh, disagree or or add something here. But Democrats are trying to differentiate themselves from the Republicans. The Republican leader Kevin McCarthy in the House, the minority leader, said recently that if Republicans retake the House, they might cut aid to Ukraine, which some people saw as a political gift to Democrats because they get to tar Republicans as being pro-Putin, just like Trump, soft on dictators. And instead, this call for ceasefire and negotiations might reinforce Republicans' stereotype of Democrats, and I think especially a Seattle Democrat, as being naive, do-gooder, left-coast, peacenik, you know, soft on crime, soft on Russia. Do I have that right? Well— Potentially. Um, I I do think that part of it was a compulsion to want to keep spotlighting this issue. The Democrats want to hold a neon sign over Ukraine because of how well they've been doing there. But this was an occasion where maybe they would have been better to keep their powder dry and let the Republicans, you know, hang themselves with the rope that they've been given. Yeah, I think that's correct. Um, You know, Ukraine isn't like other issues in this election. There's not really a clear culture war divide. Um, that Republicans or Democrats could be winning. So it, I think the Times had a uh, quote that it was an unforced error. Um, and I, I think that's really true, right? You could have just let the Republicans get really messy with their messaging over Ukraine and just sort of win this out. But now, like, the Democrats are the ones that look messy in this. But sometimes we talk about what looks messy politically um, and and forget about the substance of the policy, I just want to say that the idea of negotiation has cons, but it also has pros, right? There are a lot of Ukrainians who would rather negotiate with Russia now 
than spend the winter getting starved and frozen and bombed and then maybe end up negotiating with Russia anyway from a weaker position than they're in now. Meanwhile, you've got, as as Jayapal and the progressives pointed out, you've got the war raising food and gas prices for people who can't afford it, including in the U.S. You've got the danger of Russia using nuclear weapons. Even President Biden said this summer there's probably going to have to be a negotiated settlement eventually. That may be old news. That was back in June. But just to, you know, just to, to talk about the wisdom or the substance of what the progressives proposed was not was not uh, was not crazy. Right. Well, I, th- I think this in the Seattle Times article again, well, and I'm, Patrick, I'm not sure if that was your story or not. Somebody was quoted as saying that with foreign policy, timing is everything. You know, when you bring this up is a really important issue. And maybe in the summer when the letter was first circulated for signature, it might have made some sense in that context. Now, a couple of weeks before the election, and it's probably not the right time. And it also ignores, you know, history beyond these last six months or a year, which says Putin's not going to sit and talk with us. Wouldn't do it over New Start, which is far more significant, I think, globally than what's going on in Ukraine. And let's not forget that uh, Biden, you know, was part of a big rift that existed between the Obama administration and the Kremlin. And so, you know, he doesn't have sort of the friendly uh, sort of conciliatory demeanor towards Russia that we saw sort of hat in hand and, uh, you know, meek little hello, Mr. Putin that we saw from Trump. So uh, this they can't talk about anything. And so to presume that there was they'd be able to sit down and negotiate something as simple as a ceasefire without maybe even giving up land in Ukraine that isn't really ours to cede. It just seems like from, you know, national security from just very ham-handed for for a number of reasons. Yeah, and then I'm glad you brought that up because that's an important argument that that seeding any, as you say, Biden has already said this is up to the Ukrainians if they want to negotiate with Russia, but but seeding, it's been argued widely that seeding any territory here would just be rewarding Putin and encouraging him to keep conquering land and people. So um, that's that's uh, catching you up on this uh, this controversy, I guess, this week. A, a Congresswoman Jayapal did clarify that you know, she said we stand with Ukraine. Diplomacy is just one tool. And as Patrick alluded to, she she took responsibility, kind of. But she also kind of didn't because she blamed her staff and said that the letter was drafted months ago and and released by her staff without vetting. So uh, we'll see. I bet there's more to say about this. Uh, we'll find out. Anything? Do we cover it, team? Anything to add for now on on that? Okay. So let's let's stay on politics, though, since we're here. Um, I did. I uh, uh, my producer actually looked around and didn't see, and nor have I seen local Republicans talking about Congressmember Jayapal and Ukraine. I haven't seen that. It's a big a big issue. Um, I do want to talk about any uh, observations you have. Uh, concerning our some of these Washington state campaigns are getting national attention. Uh, the, you have the U.S. Senate campaign, the incumbent Patty Murray and the challenger Tiffany Smiley. You have the 8th District where the incumbent is a Democrat for now, Kim Schreier against Matt Larkin. You've got the 3rd House District where that incumbent's on her way out after voting to impeach Trump. So um, 
again, Patrick, I think you're paying the most of attention of any of us uh, to this. I would like to ask what we've learned from watching these campaigns, but I don't know, since we don't know the vote outcome yet. Is it too early to say that we know anything yet? Well, what we know so far is that Franco is still dead. You know, this is very much the status quo. That's a Saturday Night uh, Live reference that, uh, that I'm old enough to get. But yes, go on. Right, a 40-year-old one, right. you know, to date us all, but... Yeah. Uh, this Senate contest is about as predictable a race as you're ever going to find from a standpoint of rhetoric. The incumbent Democrat stands on a record of bringing money to her district, fighting against abortion restrictions and all the other GOP priorities that run counter to the sort of Democratic ideals, and frankly, a lot of the voters in her district. So Republican challenger then blames said incumbent Democrat for all the nation's ills, from crime to drug abuse. And we certainly don't have absolute clarity on a lot of Tiffany Smiley's positions. Uh, including whether she accepts the results of the 2020 presidential election, Mm -hmm. what sort of action she might take if elected on abortion access. I mean, she's deflected those questions and giving sort of whiplash answers, such as her personal pro-life stance, but that she would not support a national abortion ban. And frankly, it's pretty easy for a challenger to say these things because they don't have a voting record. And other Republican-aligned figures, such as Supreme Court nominees, have made similar pledges that weren't as easily kept when you get sort of swept up in the partisan control. So when it comes to that particular race, we haven't learned much uh, beyond sort of the status quo platitudes you'd expect from either party. And I think it mirrors national races uh, very much in that way. And it's probably why we're seeing a lot of incumbents, both Democrat and Republican, just avoid this whole conflict. It's a headache right now to run against a Trump propped up candidate, whether it's in a primary or a general. And so we saw a lot of retirements. And really, with this, the same goes for the 8th District congressional race. We got Schreier and Larkin, where my colleague Jim Bruner described it as, you know, clear contrast between them. But what that also means is pretty predictable answers from both parties. Um, And very much like the 2016 and 2020 presidential elections, we may not really get the message about the significance of this race until after it passes. And both of those elections, I believe we learned more about voters than we did about the candidates. And I'm eager to see, for instance, what uh, in the third district race between Trump-backed Republican Joe Kent and Democrat uh, Marie Glusenkamp-Perez, what's that going to tell us about voters' preferences in that district? It's really a fascinating one from a national perspective, too, because that seat's occupied by Republican Jamie Herrera-Butler, who, as you noted, you know, challenged Trump when few other Republicans would. She bucked the status quo. And from the sounds of things, none of the other candidates in these races have that sort of independent streak. So their platforms have really been sort of pro forma. Yeah, I would just interject here with a a poll, and I think we're going to be talking a little bit about polling lately, but uh, the Seattle Times and King 5, a couple of other places, did a preference poll. What is your number one voting issue? And abortion came out way ahead of any. 26% picked abortion, 22% picked inflation. And then things like election integrity, which you mentioned as an issue, only 5% is at their number one issue. And it would be interesting to see if these races all get down to the number two and three and four issues. You know, the uh, climate change was only 7%. Uh, inflation, well, I said inflation is 22%, but voting rights, 4%, guns, 3%. You know, some of these things, which I used to think of as people's number one priorities, just pale in comparison to abortion and inflation. 
Yeah, I expected crime to come yeah. up higher. We certainly talk about that a lot. Uh, border security, immigration. Yeah, just way down there. Yeah. yeah, the ads make it seem like crime and border security are the top priorities. But like uh, Joanne said, it's it's abortion in Washington, right? Um, so for that reason, I don't know how interesting the Senate race you know, will be once the votes are tabulated. I know um, Smiley is narrowing the gap, I think, with each poll, but I just I can't see how... <laughs> Um, she's going to eke it out over Murray. One, the one I'm really fascinated about is the eighth district. Um, the third district district is very red. Um, the reporting around it is fascinating, but it's just becoming increasingly red with every general election. But the eighth district, you know, I covered the Washington GOP election party in 2018 when Kim Schreier beat out Dino Rossi for that spot, and there was some palpable deflation that night. Um, the GOP had a, a decent night, you know, as far as some. Some initiatives around um, Tim Iman was very excited about one initiative they won, but the Shire beating Rossi was kind of a blow. That district had always been red, um, and Shire was has been the first Democrat since its inception. Um, it's a very she's running a very center campaign, not even very center left, I would say. Um, so, like Patrick said, I think after the election, once the dust is settled, we'll kind of see how that messaging worked for them. Yeah. Only time will tell. Yeah, well, right. in fact, in fact, the uh, there's a debate that's going to air tonight. We're we're doing this show live on Friday. I know it, it re-airs this weekend, but tonight, uh, Friday night on KUOW, seven o'clock, you can hear uh, Kim Schreier and Matt Larkin debate on KUOW. Uh, that's not my district, so I've already mailed in my ballot, but. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, we'll uh, we'll see. Anything more to say about you? You you, you brought up uh, polls and trying to figure out what the people want. I'd I'd like to toss in a poll that I saw. I think it was the same sort of a, a batch of the same the same poll that the Seattle Times published. Uh, they asked about Governor Inslee's idea of offering state workers a thousand bucks if they will get the new booster, the bivalent uh, Omicron specific. COVID-19 booster, and 57% of the people said they don't like the idea. And of course, that's a split between people who feel like uh, you you don't need a, you don't need a, we don't want to, to giving away taxpayer money uh, and, and bonuses and, and sort of uh, coercing people to get this, um, this booster and other people saying who think it doesn't go far enough and they say we should just mandate boosters. So uh, I don't know, Joanne, you're the health reporter here. I can't tell do Washingtonians want this booster or not and how do they feel about the governor and and the emergency orders expiring and all of it. Yeah, well, I'm sorry, I turned off this. uh, Sometimes your phones don't turn off when you tell them to turn off. They have a mind of their own. We'll talk about that. Alex, maybe you can tell us how that works a little bit later <laughs> in the show. Well, the, um, the, the, that $1,000 doesn't go into effect until January 1st. And I think it's going to be very interesting to see because it, it, in most public health experts are predicting a really tough winter, a tridemic. You mentioned it before. We've got RSV, respiratory essential virus, that is. We've got the flu and we've got this so with with that going on um it'll be interesting to see what happens when it it comes through but yeah i i think washingtonians have pretty much checked out on on being concerned and i don't know about you folks but when i walk around it's you know it's like 2019 i i i uh, i've flown a couple of times with some trepidation and keeping my mask on knowing that once you're on the plane and everyone's seated it's it's not too bad but boy you know, 
uh, masking in the airport when I walked through was maybe about 10%. And, uh, you know, dropping, I'm, you know, this dropping of the mask mandates in some ways, I'm not sure how much it's going to change things. I think there's a whole lot of people who were supposed to be wearing masks. You know, it's still going to be effect for certain people uh, in healthcare, uh, some healthcare venues and nursing homes, places like that. But, uh, you know, we're dropping that and I'm not sure it's going to change much. Yeah, the emergency, state of emergency orders end on uh, Monday. On Halloween. <laughs> on, ha- on Halloween. Although We're all going to get dressed up as, as COVID viruses. Right, 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 and mingle. Um, I and think then- it's important, though, to also look at the full breadth of what the, relaxing these uh, standards does, because there really are some practical benefits, such as non-urgent medical and dental procedures resuming and the return to sort of pre-COVID standards for training and certification of employees at healthcare and long-term care facilities that have been kind of set aside to make sure there was sufficient staffing of these places at the height of the pandemic. But once again, it's the people who are most at risk of serious COVID cases who will be forced to adjust, you know, with fewer and fewer of us masking and requirements for vaccinations trailing off, uh, though not in Seattle or King County, which will, you know, still expect employees to be vaccinated. It's those whose health makes COVID a dire prospect whose lives will be most affected and probably not positively. Yeah, and actually, I, I asked the governor's office about about the poll, and they they looked at it differently. They saw the number in there: forty nine percent of people want state employees to be vaccinated, compared to thirty five percent who don't want it. So they they took that as sort of a, a good sign. Want them to be vaccinated, or want there to be a vaccine mandate? We're state employees. Yeah. Well, they want state employees to be vaccinated. I'm not sure that the wording included mandate, but mm-hmm. that people do. Nearly half of us want state employees to be vaccinated, evidently. Mm-hmm. That's so a, th- their yeah. feeling is that they're supported. I, I look at the same numbers you do and say, ah, doesn't look that supportive to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, Joanne Silberner is a freelance health journalist, and you're listening to Seattle Times senior investigative reporter Patrick Malone and Puget Sound Business Journal tech reporter Alex Halverson. Alex, you're on deck because our big tech companies who have looked so unstoppable have have hit some rocks, and we're going to take a short break and pick up with that. So stay tuned. Don't go away. Keep watching if you want as we live stream the show on YouTube and Facebook. I'm Bill Radke, and we'll be back in a moment with more Week in Review. This podcast is free, and it's accessible to everyone thanks to support from listeners like you. If you value this show, please consider supporting its production by donating to our home, KUOW. It only takes a minute to give, and you'll be helping to support the production of this podcast. Make a donation at KUOW.org or follow the link in the show notes. And thanks! You are listening to KUOW's Week in Review. I'm Bill Radke with freelance health journalist Joanne Silberner with the Seattle Times' Patrick Malone and Puget Sound Business Journal tech reporter Alex Halverson. Alex, our local tech behemoths are looking more vulnerable lately and this week for sure. Will you tell us what's going on? They have come back down to earth. Um, you know, they had an unfathomable boom during the pandemic. They were making money like crazy. They were spending like crazy. They're growing like crazy. 
Um, they're, they're still making a lot of money. You know, the, the big ones around here, Microsoft, Amazon, Meta, they all turned profits um, this quarter. But like uh, like Meta, their profit was half of what it was, you know, a year ago. So from $9 billion down to $4 billion. Um, Amazon turned kind of in like the low two billions and Microsoft was around 17 billion, which was pretty good. But the the revenues are, you know, much slower growing than they were a year ago, um, especially with cloud, which is a little worrying because that's just not as expensive as it as logistics and, you know, other um, divisions for these companies are. So what you're seeing is a lot of them are kind of looking around and, you know, they're just not able to spend like they were a little bit ago. And some of our reporting has shown that Microsoft is, slowly moving out of Bellevue as it finishes its Redmond campus. Amazon is either putting the NICs or scrapping or even delaying the openings of a lot of warehouses it planned over the past two years. Um, There's a lot of belt tightening, even as, yeah, the raw numbers show. They're making a lot of money still, but um, the investors are giving them much uh, shorter leashes. And who's losing jobs? Who's getting laid off first? Microsoft is shaving off a few jobs here and there. I believe over at least two rounds over the past few months. Um, what kind they won't of jobs do numbers. we know? Yeah, which jobs? Yes. So anecdotally, again, you know, these companies aren't going to disclose, hey, we got rid of this team, right? Yeah. But anecdotally, what you're seeing on LinkedIn, what you're hearing from sources is that it's a lot of, you know, events teams or recruiters or marketing. It's not the engineers yet, right? The mm-hmm. the um, the software development engineers, the cloud engineers, it's not those yet, Um I, I don't want to use the word like expendable or disposable, although I'm sure there is some accountant who sees it on an Excel sheet and thinks mm-hmm. of these roles. Yeah. But, um, you know, it's it's the ones they can shave off of teams here and there. Alex, I thought I had read somewhere, and I, I couldn't find it this morning, that Microsoft was had was up 30% in terms of employees over the course of the pandemic. Is that possible that they were up that high? Yeah, the the growth has been, um, like I said, almost unfathomable for some of these companies. Even locally, you know, Microsoft's passed 61,000 employees by our research. Um, before the pandemic, they were behind Boeing in the low 50,000s. Um, company-wide, they're, you know, internationally and domestically, they're over 221,000 employees. Just a couple of years ago, they were in the 170,000. Um, Amazon's the same way. Amazon's over 1.5 million um, employees company-wide. Before the pandemic, they were under a million. So, so the so growth really is, has been crazy. Well, then this is really almost like a, a minor correction to pre-COVID days. It is, yeah, but the investors don't look at it that way, right? <laughs> <laughs> they they want to see this growth go on forever. Um, and, and again, I think the the spending part comes into that equation as well. It's not just that they're not growing as much, as that they looked at their growth and they started spending a lot. I mean, um, I think Amazon is really going to have to look at the east side and say, okay, we got to really like refine our strategy. These giant towers are building in Bellevue. Are they going to actually have people in them? Um, so I think you're going to see more and more headlines about that. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up, Joanne. I wondered something similar, whether, Alex, is this the economy, you know, interest rates, maybe a recession? Everybody's pulling back. Or do you think there's something um, bigger, specific to tech? Because, for example, I would have thought that we're just getting more and more wired and remote and cloudy and, you know, all that kind of stuff that, 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 that's, that's the business just systemically globally. Um, So is there something more I should understand about, about tech these days? You know, the big buzzword from the startups to the mid-sized companies to the bigger companies is we're strategic about our hiring and cutting jobs. Right. Um, 
a lot of that's fluff, but some of that's probably real, right? Hey, maybe we don't need a global events team. Maybe we can use some of that money to, you know, get another cloud engineer. Um, that's a totally unnuanced example of it, but I think that's where a lot of that strategy comes into, right? We don't need to open this warehouse. Let's add a few more to our cloud team. So, um, Again, they're not they're not totally shutting down hiring. They're not totally getting rid of every job. They're being strategic. <laughs> it's their buzzword. Patrick, you noticed the layoffs at Zillow. I think it was three hundred people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, that one sort of I, I saw it included with as part of this trend, and it sort of posed a chicken or the egg question to me. Uh, rather than asking whether these uh, you know few hundred jobs lost will affect home prices. I'm curious whether the slight slowdown in home prices was actually the tail wagging this dog, which would go to Alex's point of some of these moves just being strategic in the moment. So um, I don't think it's cause for panic, but I do think that Seattle's tech-reliant economy is far more fragile than most people that I, that I speak with uh, mm. realize because there's almost this aura of permanence when you talk to long-time Seattle residents about housing and the tech economy and things. And I think that... You know, no need to panic just yet, but let's be mindful of the fact that other industries have taken big hits at various times for a number of colliding economic uh, reasons. And, you know, to be mindful that this is something that we always ought to be watching because as go the tech companies, so goes Seattle's economy. And Boeing's having issues at the moment, too. I mean, they just got that big Alaska Airlines buy, but they were having problems. And the same day, they, you know, they announced some other problems that, that, could be serious. Of course, some people's one person's panic is another person's hope of being able to afford someplace to live. <laughs> yeah, that's important right. too, isn't it? <laughs> uh, well, since you you did mention the the parent of Facebook and Instagram, who who employs a lot of people here, Meta, and Alex, this week a King County judge ordered Meta to pay twenty four point six million dollars for repeatedly, and I mean repeatedly. <laughs> violating Washington State's campaign finance laws, the biggest campaign finance penalty anywhere in the country ever, according to the Washington attorney general who sued them. Um, So first, Alex, since Meta has a lot more than twenty four point six million (laughs) dollars, does this matter? Um, Yes and no. Right. Does it matter? Yeah, it's a big win for transparency. If you want to be an optimist, you know, I think of this kind of as a gold standard for campaign transparency um, in the country. And the fact that the judge really didn't kowtow to, I mean, Meta in these filings was really arguing that they thought this law was ridiculous, that they shouldn't have to pay it. And that it was too burdensome for a tech company like them or Google who had allegedly violated it in the past. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think it's a big deal in that Meta really, I think, thought they were going to win or at least kind of get out from under this. And that the judge stood his ground and made him pay the full penalty and was kind of nitpicky about these violations. I mean, those violations represent, you know, Bill, if you went and you asked for information 10 times and they didn't give it to you any times, that's 10 violations. So it's not even like 822 people. Sorry, but I didn't mean to talk. Oh, you're good. Maybe we should just let listeners, you know, remind listeners what this transparency law is, what is it that in Washington state these platforms are supposed to do that that Meta refused to do? Yeah, and Patrick, you might be able to supplement what I'm saying, but basically, you know, if a, if a platform platforms a political ad um, and you request information about it, they have to disclose it in a timely manner. Um, you know, who paid for the ad, uh, how many people are seeing the ad, which with a tech company is a lot more difficult than it was, you know, 50 years ago when it was 
five TV channels. Um, so it's a lot of financial information about these ads. And if you're going to be generous to Meta, so much of this is automated. Maybe they just weren't keeping track of this. But at the same time, you know, tough. Uh, that's the law, <laughs> right? Are they following it now? Uh, it's only a win for transparency if they're going to follow the law, right? Yeah, this is true. I mean, when they were when they were sued a couple of years ago and they settled, they said, okay, kind of took their ball and went home. They said, okay, we're not going to platform ads. Um, but then they resumed. So as of right now, I actually don't know the status, but uh, we'll see. Yeah. I, I personally think this is a really big deal from from a you know open government and transparency perspective and not just the uh, official action taken against Meta, but Meta's response to it. Uh, this wasn't just for forgetting to file a campaign finance form. I mean, as Alex is just outstanding reporting, I loved your coverage of this, Alex, and this is where Thank I you. learned every, everything I know about it. So uh, this encompasses 822 violations yeah. after already being sued by the AG for this behavior and settled, settling you know, prior reporting lapses for nearly a quarter of a million dollars in fines. So uh, the prospect that this failure to disclose was deliberate also remains under review, and that's pretty important. It goes to their motive. Was this on purpose? And it might pass through a lot of people without much concern, but as someone whose sole professional purpose is informing the public about the forces motivating and manipulating their government's decisions, you know, especially in an age of Citizens United and growing clout around dark money, I think it's really, really gross. And uh, on purpose or not, Facebook denied voting citizens in this state the right to know what outside interests we're gaining favor with people in power. That's inexcusable from my perspective, especially when you consider that Facebook is the regular swimmer in the waters of political influence. They lobby, they're involved in campaign and issue committee donations, even independent expenditure. So that makes it an even bigger cause for concern. Uh, thanks for that. So finally, does this money, this $24.6 million dollars, settlement does that uh, or penalty does that money show up in washington state's general fund budget like i always think note to other it, states you can make millions of dollars by requiring <laughs> rich tech companies to do things they have no intention of doing when they can afford to pay you off i forget the name of it but it goes to a specific um basically transparency fund um mm -hmm. patrick you might know the name of it but it's, it's a specific fund it goes to mm -hmm. Okay. Anything to add about uh, about where where we are in tech? Uh, I guess e Elon Musk is is laying off is, has just taken hold of Twitter and is laying people off. Do we have, do we have a bunch of Twitter employees in Seattle? We've got a few. They they kind of keep their operation here under wraps. Um, last I heard, I think it was a couple hundred, kind of standard to I think what Snapchat has in the area, but it's nowhere near what um, the outsiders like Meta or Google have. Yeah. Okay. Well, those jobs might be at risk. Elon Musk is an interesting <laughs> one to watch. Okay, uh, well, then let's take another break. Uh, that's Alex Halverson from Puget Sound Business Journal. And we've got health reporter Joanne Silberner here. We've got Seattle Times investigative reporter Patrick Malone. We're going to take a short break. Uh, I went to the hardware store last night and bought two air filters, 20 by 20, same size as my box fan, so that um, in June or July or August or whatever, I won't be uh, competing in a run on the store. Uh, but is that the best we can do around here? We'll talk about that, and uh, uh, I'll I'll initiate my hyperbole watch, and we'll find something to smile about. And so good stuff on the other end of a short break on KUOW's Week in Review.
This is KUOW's Week in Review. I'm Bill Radke, and I've got local journalists here from Puget Sound Business Journal, tech reporter Alex Halverson, Seattle Times senior investigative reporter Patrick Malone, freelance health journalist Joanne Silberner. You're listening to me at the least, and maybe you're watching us because we are streaming live at, uh, let's see, Facebook and YouTube. You can come watch us. Just search for KUOW Public Radio. Okay, uh, rain and snow in the Cascades this week. I have my I, actually. I'm still, I noticed, just noticed I'm still wearing my rain pants. Uh, <laughs> it was it was wet and it was dark at the bus stop and it feels like the Pacific Northwest again. And our our we've got uh, wildfires are out or on their way out with some snow in the mountains. And as I was saying, I went to the hardware store last night and bought a couple of air filters in advance, Joanne. Health reporter Joanne Silberner, is it just air filters and duct tape from here on out, or is local government changing any policies to reflect a possible new normal, smoky life in the Puget Sound area? Well, this is no surprise to them. And, you know, uh, Jeff Duchin was, uh, he's fond of saying that this climate is the, change. Sorry, this is the it, King County uh, I don't know, Public Health Director or whatever his title uh, is. He's the medical officer medical for officer. Uh, Seattle King County Public Thank Health. Yeah. Right. And he's been saying he calls climate change the single greatest threat to public health. So it's job one for him. They've been aware of this. They've, you know, they have places to go for people. They have, uh, they very cleverly, I think, repurposed some COVID relief funding to use for improving ventilation in some public places. They've upped their multi-language outreach efforts so that people who are non-English speakers will know what to do as well, you know, know where there are places to go, both for for breathing issues or during heat waves. They've started a, they've started a training program for community leaders to teach them what to do with a box fan, which is basically get your box fan and your filter and tie them together and put them in the right orientation and try and uh, pull in clean air or try and clean air as it comes in. So they're, they're doing what they can. Uh, you know, really the bottom line that needs to be done is to <laughs> stop the fires, stop climate change. And I think that's beyond their reach. Uh, the one thing bothersome when I was asking them, you know, so what are you doing? Uh, I said, you know, what was the toll of the recent uh, the recent smoke? I don't know about you. I had a hard time with it. Uh, but they don't have any health stats right now because there's a data sharing glitch. So getting the information from the hospital and collating it together. So they couldn't tell me how bad things were, but they did tell me, yeah, they know it. They're out there. They're trying to get things done. And uh, for homeless people, uh, that's been turned over to uh, – what is it? The, the King County Regional Authority. I know it is uh, KCRA. That's been it turn, turned over, and they have been uh, they've been in charge of severe weather issues since the beginning of the year. They've alerted their service providers and outreach folks with you know what to do. What they have found is that homeless people prefer to shelter in place. They don't want to come in anywhere to get some clean air. So they've been working on ways to help them, and it's. That's the heat is actually, you know, they can give them water and cold. They can give them blankets. Smoke is a little harder. Um, They've said that they've gotten a lot of support from the King County Library System and emergency management agencies to try and find places for people to go when they when you just can't get clean air outside. But it's kind of hard because a lot of people don't want to come in. Well, you mentioned a lack of health data. You know, the smoke is so arresting and. you know, and, and and remarkable, and it falls 
heavily on people who are, you know, have asthma, et cetera, are vulnerable, very young, very old, um, and yet not much on some other people. And so I, I, I'm, is it just a matter of time? They're collating this data and eventually we're going to know, are we ever going to, when are we going to know how dangerous, when we say smoke is dangerous, yet we, we, go about our lives and we go outside, at least uh, tons of people do, right? How how are we going and when are we going to find out how dangerous this is? Because I would think you would need data before local government is going to uh, produce actions to, um, for example, there are areas that are more polluted than other areas, right? So it's a matter of equity. And so, what do you what do you see on the horizon here when it comes to action? They know. I mean, you have increased emergency room visits for asthma. You have uh, heart attack rates go up. All sorts of things go up in the short run, and of course, in the long run, there are problems continuing. They absolutely know. I mean. I want the data as a, as a journalist. I want to be able to put a number. Well, they had this much of an increase in pediatric asthma visits, or they had this much of an, you know, mental health can be affected too. There's that apocryphal feeling. And if you, you know, are high anxiety, this can, and this can really push up your anxiety. There's a whole slew of effects and those are known. Quantifying them for any particular event does take immediate data, but they, they don't, they don't need this data as much as I want to have it so that when I go around and ask people about it, I can say, hey, you know, this is how big it is. But they know it's big. There's no question about this smoke. I mean, it's like it, when you consider it, you're right, you named it, people living in polluted areas, kids and adults with asthma, people over 65, people prone to heart attacks. It's add these things together and it's a huge number. To the, so, for example, does the does this trigger the Clean Air Act? And and so uh, local governments would be required to take action that they're not taking yet? Boy, I don't know the answer to that. Hmm. I, I don't know whether it triggers the, the, the federal law requiring state or local action. I mean, certainly people who live in areas where there's not a lot of air, you know, natural ventilation, you know, they're up there. People who live anywhere where the smoke is coming in, you know, we're all up there. So, but I don't know federally, and but locally, I have to say, I, I, I don't know about you, but I certainly heard a lot of things on the radio about where to go and what to do, and uh, I think that they're doing a pretty good job getting the word out that that you need to do something. And even if, I have to say, even if you're not feeling anything, there can be some damage done. You know, next time you go out for a run, tell me how it fe- in that smoke. Tell me how it feels. Hmm. Okay, anything to add on uh, the smoke situation? Before Glad we it's on? gone. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. glad it's gone. Um, yeah, nice to, nice to see. As I was mentioning, the, not only the, the wet but the dark that's making it feel uh, uh. More, like, more like home again, more like the Pacific Northwest, <laughs> which brings me to my next topic. Everybody needs a hobby. Uh, my hobby is noticing exaggeration because I see it in—, in more than ever, social media, advertising, politics, just the way we talk and send emails around. We just we just we overstate things for effect, which is a good thing because it makes us less boring. And and it's we're, we, we can compel people and and, ri- you know, bring us to action. 
But sometimes I wonder whether we really mean what we say. So I'm going to give you just a small example from this week, and I want to know what you think. Multiple news media noted that as of this week, our sunsets now come before 6 o'clock p.m. And this was called gloomy. Seattle Times called it the big dark and said starting this week, Seattle sunsets hit a grim landmark. So I ask you, autumn sunsets are grim. Is that slightly exaggerated, hyperbolic, or absolutely dead on? I think that's hyperbolic. <laughs> yeah? Um, grim, I don't man? know. Grim. That's so that's so grim. I don't know about grim. <laughs> well, it's certainly not a surprise. If, if you're surprised, you just got here last year. <laughs> right. Uh, and if, if, if you're like me, which is, yeah, it's, it's, I don't want to use the word grim. Yes, it's getting darker earlier, but it's a relief. That's, that's normal. You know, there, there's so many changes to the environment and so many things going on that, the, the sun is rising and setting at the right time. It's somewhat of a relief to me. Gloomy is perfect, right? We're in Washington. We're subdued. Gloomy is a good word. <laughs> I'm going to have to agree with everyone. It's hyperbolic, <laughs> even though it was my own paper. And I'm a fan of the gloom, right? It doesn't have to be a negative connotation. It's kind of cozy and you know gives you time to catch up on all streaming of your favorite shows that we missed. Well, it was sunny for three months and, you know, uh, I guess gloom is in the eye of the beholder. <laughs> Actually, I should look that up. Gloom. I think gloom is literally true, right? Doesn't gloom just mean, doesn't it go back to darkness? I think gloom, the word gloom has to do with darkness. It's different. It's different from gloom. I, I think we can agree on gloomy. Um, so uh, anyway, feel free to let me know what you think about all that, uh, listeners. What? Uh, how are you feeling about about the big dark? Um, by the way, I would just note that Washington State passed permanent daylight saving time. Yeah, right? what happened to that? <laughs> Congress isn't doing anything. Senator uh, Senator Patty Murray was a big campaigner for this in the Senate. She backed something hilariously named the Sunshine Protection Act. Speaking <laughs> speaking of hyperbole, speaking of overstatement. Um but uh, so yes, we have not made daylight saving time permanent. Meanwhile, some Joanne again, health reporter, I see I feel like I see more health reporters than not, more health experts than not, saying that daylight saving time isn't so good for us, that that maybe standard time is better for us. But I don't know if you Well, it's the switch. It's yeah. not so much which whether one is better than the other. It's the switch. It's only one hour, and you think that's not much, but it, it can affect people. They, uh, I, I know that for the week afterwards, after the switch either way, even when we gain the hour, quote unquote, which kills me because it's the same amount of, as you pointed out, it's the same amount of suns, sunlight, no matter how you cut it. Yeah. But, the, you know, the, the, the switch is tough. There are more accidents immediately after, you know, it, it, which way would there be more accidents? I guess there are more accidents in the spring. I can't, one, or the, one or the other, there are more traffic accidents, but there's also well-being issues that, that people feel a little bit disconcerted by the change. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't, it drives me crazy because it, you know, especially here where we're going to school or work in the morning when it's dark and we're coming home when it's dark. What's the difference how it shifts with, you know, with with those of us with fairly normal schedules, you know, what's the difference with the shift? But even when it's a little bit broader, it's still either one or the other. You know, you're going to have kids at the school bus either, you know, in the morning when it's dark or if they're coming home late, you know, a little later from school in the afternoon, it's getting dark if, you know, if they've got after school activities it's the same amount of sunlight 
This is why I love talking to journalists, because you will lay things out for us. <laughs> Here's how it looks like from this point of view. Here's how it looks like from this point of view, because many people will tell you that they know exactly whether daylight saving time or or standard is the correct one. Just like people will tell you which kind of Halloween candy tastes awesome and which kind tastes horrible and deplorable. No uh, candy corn. <laughs> no dis- candy I, corn. I disagree, but I don't need you to agree <laughs> with me on candy corns. Uh, okay, it's we're wrapping up here. We've got three minutes left in the show. I want to make time for anything that's making you uh, smile. Any, did anything happen this week that seemed hopeful or, or pleasing in your eyes? Yeah, the sun rose and set at the right time. <laughs> That the, it, it might come with gloom, but something is working on schedule the way it's supposed to and is not affected by climate change and is not affected by politicization of everything. It just is. And I found that a relief. Yes, fall is here. I was walking through Belltown yesterday and it was windy and the leaves were stirring and it was it was whipping all, all around me. It was wonderful. A third vote for the beautiful, gloomy fall, <laughs> you know. <laughs> It's for me. It was the the rustle of leaves under our feet as I walked my kids to school this week in their sort of book of ween costumes, where they were getting you know amped for this change in season. So you know, let's embrace it. Let's be cozy. Let's catch that chill air and that warm apple cider and all the fun that comes with it. Right? Yeah, yeah. And and if you do go out in the chill, some of us still hike here in the shoulder season and even the winter and you if you want to go out there and be warm in one spot i saw that local cities and counties are dropping their burn bans thanks to the rain so king pierce and homish counties lifting their outdoor burn bans so you can you can get out there and it oh it's not easy to, to start a fire in the rain i'm not saying that it is but if you can do it you can enjoy it Okay, uh, let's wrap up the show. Uh, I've been talking on Week in Review with my local journalist guests, Joanne Silberner, freelance health journalist, Puget Sound Business Journal, tech reporter Alex Halverson, and Seattle Times senior investigative reporter Patrick Malone. Thanks to you all. Now I know what happened this week, and I'm smarter because of it. Thanks, everybody. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Bill. Thanks for tuning in on Week in Review here on KUOW. And I got to thank our producer of the show, Kevin Kniestet, and the social media aspect of the show, your ability to go on to Facebook and YouTube and watch the live stream. Uh, and, uh, and, and just basically, in general, follow us on social media. That's thanks to Tio Popescu and Juan Pablo Chiquiza. And it would sound like nothing if Bernard Wallet didn't uh, use the faders Uh, just right and make everything sound great on the board as always. Uh, Again, we've got the live debate if you're listening to us live Friday night, 7 o'clock. Kim Schreier, Matt Larkin. Tune in and have a great weekend and we'll do this again next week on KUOW's Week in Review.